from the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C. This is Everything About Hydrogen. I am Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and freshly returned from Dublin to join the show from his office just down the street here in D.C. is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, will join Patrick for the main interview portion of this episode, but for now, it's just me and Mr. Malloy getting us started. This episode is the finale for season three of Everything About Hydrogen. The team here is taking a brief break during October and November, but we will be back at it in December, bringing our listeners the latest developments and important discussions in the hydrogen sector across the globe. In order to wrap Season 3 of EAH appropriately, we are honored to have our most popular EAH guest back with us. Alicia Eastman, president and co-founder of Intercontinental Energy, is here to help us review the big hydrogen happenings of 2022 and preview some of the most important predictions and expectations for the sector coming for 2023. Alicia needs no introduction for the fans of this show, so we'll jump into the discussion here in just a moment. But before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Also, heads up to our listeners. There is an exciting announcement at the end of this episode, so stay tuned to find out what we have in store for everyone for season four. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, Patrick, uh, you and I are flying solo or together, duo on this uh, intro. You and Chris were able to chat with Alicia to wrap up uh, season three last week for the main part of this, but uh, doing a little intro here. So first things first as usual, Patrick, how are things? Things are good, Andrew. Good to be back in in the United States after... uh... A little, little yeah. Welcome back. back. I note that you have not called me since you've returned, but that's okay. That's well, a that's a discussion for non non public podcasting content. Anybody who's remotely aware <laughs> aware of the the hydrogen space in in North America generally can understand what a week we've or a couple of weeks we've been having, and that that may be why, Andrew. I don't know. Is there anything on top of <laughs> mind you know that what, might have Patrick? happened that might have distracted us all from just you know? Hanging out. I can't think of anything. No, no. But uh, I did put you on the spot there. But yes, I actually can think of something, Patrick. And I think that probably takes us to <laughs> a good talking point more fit for the podcast. The Department of Energy in the United States has finally uh, deigned to let us all in on their thinking process and uh, what they want to do for the Hydrogen Hubs program, at least tranche one, if we want to put it that way released their FOA last week. I can never remember what that stands oh, for. Andrew, funding opportunity announcement. God, you got to get up with the lingo. <laughs> Did you say fleeting opportunity announcement? That doesn't sound good. Pretty short timeline, so uh, people need to get sorted out. But no, fun- funding opportunity announcement. So we... Uh, that's what, Yeah, that sounds right. That makes, that makes more sense. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into that a little bit. I know you and Chris and Alicia were able to uh, talk in some more detail about it during the, during the core portion of this episode. So we'll leave the, the big detailed discussion for that. But 
maybe uh, give us a little bit of flavor of, of what's important about the FOA and why everybody's uh, and why you're not able to call me because it's so important. Oh, well, you know, it's only the matter of directionally in this first kind of round of it, the six to seven billion dollars of cost share based hydrogen uh, linked projects in, in the United States. So, yeah, we've gone from zero to 100 in, in a very short space of time. Um, and yeah, like it's effectively the, the piece of, uh, work that, um, we were very excited about after the infrastructure, uh, law passed, um, earlier in the year or yeah, I think it was earlier in this year. And, um, and yeah, like it's, it's a, it's a big commitment to develop hydrogen resources and systems across in the United States. So yeah, uh, big piece of big piece of uh, play for for folks in the space here, and also generating an awful lot of attention. So, I think uh, yeah. we're going to get into it in a little bit more uh, specificity, and and perhaps uh, learn a little bit more about uh, some of the application kind of uh, kind of requirements or discussions around the challenges of certain things a little bit more in the episode. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fair enough. And I w- we won't want to spoil too much of that of that discussion. But I guess one one thing I would be curious to get your thoughts on before we dive dive into it a bit more uh, in the rest of the episode is you know one of the things that was I would say a somewhat widespread complaint about the notice of intent that was issued back in May or June of this year, saying that the FOA would be coming out later this year, was it sort of a lack of specificity and that it was a little bit big picture, uh, not too much guidance in that notice of intent, which is maybe understandable given that it's a notice of intent, but the, uh, the FOA and the clean hydrogen production standards that were issued last week, that's not the case. Am I right? That's, we're talking 150 pages, detailed, uh, requirements, detailed process and a six week deadline from the date of issuance, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, for for the the FOA, the the concept note is due in about six weeks, five six weeks from now, I guess at this stage. Um, the uh, full application then due a few months after that. Um, and the one thing it doesn't lack is specificity and detail. There's certainly areas where there's probably a few questions and kind of a discerning the the, the kind of the standards required. But uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely detailed by comparison to what we've seen before. Um, on the, the standards that were kind of released or the, the guidance on it, that's a, or an RFI that came out. So we're being asked to uh, collectively uh, respond to what we think those standards are and how they should be kind of designed or implemented or whatnot. So, uh, you know, we've got, a, we've got a lot of detail, but we've got a, we've got a lot of opportunity to, uh, to engage here over the next little while. So, yeah, we're not lacking detail as comparison, uh, as contrasting to what we previously had in terms of information. So yeah, lots of nighttime, bedtime reading for everybody. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, when you're done with uh, with House of the Dragon, uh, just turn up over to uh, the FOA. That uh, should be similar, similar in ex- levels of excitement. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a busy six weeks for yourself, Patrick, and uh, undoubtedly on our end over uh, at <laughs> Biotech, we'll be pretty busy ourselves. So uh, excited to see how that pans out and excited to uh, let our listeners in on the discussion you guys had with Alicia uh, and uh, you, yourself and Chris and Alicia uh, around this. So I think we can jump right into it. 
the one other thing I would flag for our listeners at this point is that there is an exciting uh, announcement that you guys will uh, unveil at the tail end of the interview with Alicia uh, at the end of this episode. So we're wrapping up season three with a bang and uh, excited to take a little bit of a break here in October and start things back up November, December for season four. See you on the other side, man. So, been a little while since we've uh, we've we've caught up. It's uh, been a fairly busy time for many people at the moment. Um, so, with uh, me and uh, in the EAH virtual studio today, I have the pleasure of having our favoured friend Alicia Eastman with us, and of course, uh, partner in crime Patrick Malloy. This week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on in the broader hydrogen market and kind of a little bit of a market review of 2022, a bit of a snapshot of events. So to kick us off, I'm going to put the question straight over to you, Alicia, first. What, what do you think has been, if you like, the defining uh, theme or defining event for the hydrogen industry in 2022? Well, well, I think, you know, it, it started out quite strong, very similar to um, every other sector last year. But we've, we've seen a bit of a rout uh, in this area. But nevertheless, I think that there's still quite a lot of investment. I mean, there was a recent investment that included 47 entities <laughs> in Aquaventus. <laughs> so there is definitely a lot of capital that's looking to invest in, in hydrogen, and that's that's good to see. The, the single biggest thing, I think, though, that was a bit of a surprise is that the U.S. managed to get um, the IRA passed, um, and it wasn't as big a deal as we would like it to be, and it obviously includes a lot of different areas like healthcare, taxes, and deficit reduction. But there's a huge amount of money for the supply chain, which I think is going to be super um, useful for the industry because we need to have a lot of different diversification of supply and just increasing the um, technology development so that we have lots of different technologies coming out in the different supply chain spaces. Uh, there's a lot of money that's supporting that. And then, of course, there's a lot of subsidies for decarbonization uh, in the U.S. Uh, I think they're expecting like 250 million solar panels and 120,000 wind turbines to be to be installed by 2030, which which is great. I think in terms of pushing people to uh, scale with a lot of these supply chain uh, equipment, and I think India and Saudi are doing the same for. Um, for solar panels and in a number of different areas. So the diversification of sourcing of these materials and of the of the products themselves, I think is, is super important and useful for us scaling in the industry. And maybe I'll pass it over to Patrick. I think there's a whole bunch of things in there. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, we've gone through kind of the IRA, the, you know, um, general scaling up of the industry investor appetite so yeah i mean i know it's been a busy year but um <laughs> probably uh not sure what we've left for you patrick to cover off but why don't we give it a shot patrick what else would you say were big themes or big stories of the year i think we can only pray that we have a quiet year that that's everything that happened but no realistically this has been a 
this has been a huge one. I think you know, you know, uh, at least you mentioned the 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 IRA kind of getting past there the you know a couple of weeks back, huge huge step forward. But earlier in the year, even still, like the the infrastructure law that passed nine and a half billion dollars to be directly um, allocated by DOE. Um, to hydrogen hub development in, in the United States. That's going to be a huge one. The the funding opportunity announcement for which is coming out probably later this week, early next. Um, so the project kickoff and the craziness continues. But um, I think there is one fundamental one, which uh, which I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's perhaps a higher level kind of position, which is that we have finally seen what volatility in natural gas markets across the world does to people's lives, industries' competitiveness, and it is a an economic and risk management necessity towards transformation. And um, if people think that the standard, you know, kind of returns and investments from conventional oil and gas are going to continue into the future, this is the market you're signing up for expecting you know huge huge volatility and disruption and and also you know very fundamentally um we now have an incentive from every um major global kind of uh, industrial commercial entity to start to think about how they manage their risk on on power and and, and energy in general um so i think this has been a pretty transformative year both on the positive side and also on the negative side in terms of what we've seen uh, around uh, dictators controlling um, natural resources and using them as a weapon. But what about you, Chris? Because it's been a quiet one for you and Proteum, I'm sure. Yeah, very quiet. Nothing's really gone on this year, to be honest. Um, we've just been watching from the sidelines. Um, no, look, I, I, I think there are many different ways to look at this year. I think, though, if you were trying to look at an overarching theme that has cascaded through everything we've done in the hydrogen sector and I think more broadly what's going on in the energy sector, um, you really have to talk about the, the war in Ukraine. Now, there are other themes people will point to and people may may say that I'm overplaying this, but I think, you know, the war in Ukraine fundamentally, it is not an isolated local conflict. It is a economic form of warfare between two of the biggest trading blocks in the world. And the result of which has been energy inflation globally um, with a high concentration in Europe, but with spillover effects that has driven and transformed the nature not just of global energy systems but also global supply chains and is now impacting on things like food security so i think that theme that's been dramatic for everybody has had huge ramifications for hydrogen i think it has rewritten european ambitions um, and you look at things like the repower plan that the european commission announced and the scale of green hydrogen opportunities and that is clearly driven by a profound shift in confidence around security of supply from Russia and a completely changed relationship um, between traditionally Europe's biggest energy supplier and what they see as the future. Um, in other places, it's actually emboldened oil and gas producers. You know, we're seeing in UK now that there's more talk of fracking and North Sea oil and gas licenses. There's a revival of coal in Europe and a revival of LNG. There's, you know, a healthy amount of bumper profits now going into a number of US shale players. Um, and certainly countries in the Middle East that are, you know, are still doing very well out of this and in some ways will be able to leverage additional returns from this crisis to potentially fund investment into new energy areas. So whether good or bad, the effects of the war in Ukraine for energy and for hydrogen have been quite profound. 
And then you really have to talk country by country to understand what that means. I think Alicia also spoke about mineral supply. And, you know, it's point it's important to point out that in hydrogen, at least, we're often talking about platinum-based PEM fuel cell or PEM electrolysis technologies. And outside of South Africa, Russia is the biggest supplier. And even if you get into things like steel or aluminium, you know, you're also talking about Russia and Ukraine being a major global supplier. And if you're talking about other parts of the global ecosystem to enable hydrogen technologies, whether that is microprocessing chips or batteries um, or solar panels or wind, you know, increased antagonism between um, Russia and the Western world has also spilled over into a retrenching of global supply chains. And that is having a big impact. You know, there are real fears in the hydrogen ecosystem around you know, will people actually be able to get electrolyzers or with the IRA in the US, with the competitions in the UK and with several projects in Europe, are you going to find a massive shortening in the global supply chain? So a lot of projects get planning and permitting, they get the engineering done, they get contracts to the signature point, but they just can't get the equipment. Um, You know, I think that was just not really seen as an issue last year and now very much is an issue and a very live issue. So If you put me on the spot for my big theme of the year, I think that has been the big theme of the year. I wonder, Alicia, whether you would disagree with that. I mean, you kind of have a, you know, you're working on these very long term mega projects. Um, You know, am I being too short? Am I only looking at things that are having a short term impact or or uh, do you think actually even even over the longer term of your projects that there's a macro impact from from this event? You were accusing me of covering a lot of ground, but I think you (laughs) had a lot packed in there as well. I think. The one silver lining of the war um, in Ukraine uh, is this this realization about the volatility of pricing. And it's not like this is the first time. I mean, uh, the, the issue with fossil fuels is that the price really swings up and down quite dramatically. And only a few years ago, we had uh, oil that was, you know, w- worth negative dollars, right? I mean, I don't know if people remember that, but that that was a completely different problem. And you had companies like Cathay Pacific who hedged their cost of oil for their um, uh, for for their flights, and they they almost went bankrupt because they made the prudent decision to hedge the cost of oil uh, because the oil dropped in price dramatically. So I think. I think with this, uh, people really are aware of there's two parts to energy security. It, it's not just the source, but it's also the price. Because when the price is just too high, uh, you know, it, it's not feasible for, for people to use the, the products. And I, I think that is making people understand how some of the benefits of renewables. Renewables and then that, of course, driving into hydrogen. But the, the truth is with renewables, you know what you're getting. Um, you aren't going to have a price that's linked to Henry Hub. You're not going to be attached to fossil fuel pricing. And that's going to be really attractive to a lot of people, people who want to have long-term contracts with one price. And, and that's going to be really a first time that things like this can, can happen for many different industries that use fuels rather than electrons. So I think in general, that is a, a real positive coming out of the war. Obviously, wars are terrible, so most of the rest of it is is not so positive. Um, I do think that the minerals are are an issue, um, and it's something that we should have tackled um, quite some time ago. We we should be having just a lot more diversity in every single part of the supply chain. 
But we've seen this year an expansion in like electrolyzers from just alkaline and PEM and AEM to uh, ETAC, to electrochemical thermally activated chemical electrolyzers. You're looking at, there's some electrolyzers that have no membrane. They don't require platinum. Um, people are coming up with different solutions that don't require those same rare materials. And I think that's that's very positive as well. So we, we may not need to use um, many different things that are, are hard to find. And we may have other solutions that are available in, in different parts of the world to produce different types of equipment. Um, so I think that has actually been positive. And, and it's one of the good things about the, um, I should call it IRA too. IRA is a bit, uh, um, you know, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't sound quite right. Yeah. It's not the best name, is it? Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's not a wonderful name. I mean, Patrick, I saw that you had rebranded it IRA rather than IRA, which is what the commentators I, here. I agree. I, IRA makes a lot more sense, especially coming from say Biden and Kerry. <laughs> it's a little bit interesting, but, um, yeah. So I think that their support for, um, you know, coming up with different solutions and for, for use for producing uh, local materials and using local materials. I mean, this is all adding the, to the diversification, which I think will be helpful for the whole world. Uh, they'll they'll still go build facilities in other countries. It's not all going to be in the U.S., but the technology will improve at a faster rate when they have subsidies and and different in, um, incentives to to make changes. So I think those are all super positive. But uh, obviously, war is war. So it's, uh, you know, it's not the greatest thing that happened this year. Patrick, I mean, you know, you've obviously been involved with the UN green hydrogen efforts. You know, how do you see that as having influenced and, and having an impact on the hydrogen market this year? I mean, you know, if 2017 was the year the Hydrogen Council was launched and it kind of took two years to get steam, you know, in 2020 and 21 were the boom years where people were really raising and, and have raised serious war chests to go build businesses, um, rapidly accelerate technology readiness levels and put some of that manufacturing ecosystem in place. How do you characterize 2022 and, and what role has that added prestige from groups like the UN and these big multinational companies had or, or, or hasn't had maybe, um, you know, on, on how you'd see 2022? Wow, that's a big question. Um, well, I don't like to give you small questions. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's it's been what three seasons now, Chris. I'm well, I'm well aware. Um, no, but but in all seriousness, like, like I I think it's it's worth recognizing the catalytic effect that that these sort of efforts can have. It's not that you know, it's not that every single effort that has ever been has always been the catalytic factor, right? But but sometimes having an organized room of organized actors who are prepared to put steel in the ground and, you know, to speak to the, the catapult effort and in, in, in the green hydrogen catapult effort in general, the, the whole intent of it is to get deployment and implementation. And that's what the membership group committed to when signing up. And, you know, I think it's, it's a bit of a signal kind of situation in a sense when you, you see people committing to projects, there's an element to which other people start to, uh, you know, look again, right, in, in the first instance and, and question whether they have a pathway or whether they were missing something in their original decision making. But then, you know, it, it can't be understated that, you know, more and more policy, and I, I say policy as opposed to targets, as in tangible 
uh, regulatory and, and political kind of outcomes, becoming more concrete helps that. Uh, demand side signals with some of the agreements that we've seen kind of start to to pop up. All, all of this strikes, uh, you know, kind of at the the kind of momentum behind it. So, so I, I think you know you can never you can never say exactly how much or whatnot. But I think over the last number of years, we've seen a number of efforts that have materially com- uh, complemented each other in moving forward the kind of perception positioning, and also um, uh, led to kind of some levels of success on the on the policy point. I, I would just also say, and as a flag, you know, the the other side of this, and and it's one that we sometimes get get dragged into kind of the very specific on the on the hydrogen side, you know, whether you talk about uh, electrolytic kind of technology pathways or whatnot, um, or, you know, you look at kind of storage mechanisms or things like that, right? But, you know, the, the cost profile for renewable energy continues to decline. Um, and, you know, when we look at, you know, last week, um, Secretary Granholm announced, you know, a, a kind of an enhanced geothermal Shot aiming at a twenty four, sorry, a twenty thirty five. I think it's a forty five dollar uh, megawatt hour, and similarly a floating offshore Earth shot targeting same price, same date, but about fifteen gigawatts of offshore wind for for the U.S. That's just the U.S., but it's an example of how kind of these these kind of bigger kind of efforts and aspirational pieces kind of set the momentum in a sector. When and when they're followed up with tangible policy like the inflation reduction lag. Act like the inflation, or sorry, the infrastructure law, like some of the the European Commission policy kind of guidance that seems to be somewhat still in the mix right now, but seems quite impactful. Um, yeah, momentum takes off. So, so these last couple of years, and, and certainly the last year, getting people to actually make tangible commitment that cause other people to take tangible action, or the other way around, tangible action causing people to take make tangible commitments is is kind of part of this this effort and this transformative or transformative game but it's you know that's that's from my perspective sitting on this side of the chair i'd be interested to hear kind of kind of alicia like sitting in your chair on on maybe closer to the project side how that kind of momentum looks and how that that kind of um kind of engagement kind of fits in well i think two of the things i've seen this year that that give me a lot of hope are uh, there's been a, a lot more coalescing around uh, green ammonia, as everyone knows. I'm quite fond um, for shipping in particular. So um, there's been a lot of studies done on green shipping corridors, and the Getting to Zero Coalition has increasingly been supporting uh, green ammonia as a solution. The McKinney Maersk Muller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping released their report, which showed. Uh, green ammonia will save uh, shipping 40% in their energy transition. So I, I, there's there's definitely been a lot more confidence and uh, agreement that uh, ammonia is, is a serious solution for a lot of, for a few sectors, but, but for certainly for uh, part of shipping. And then the other one that's really interesting is green steel. I think you guys had a, a, a guest on recently from H2 Green Steel, and an investor in that company was um, ArcelorMittal, um, in, as well as GIC, Temasek, Breakthrough, Yara. Um, but ArcelorMittal has uh, a big fund that has done H2Pro, Heliogen, Form Energy, Lanzatech, 
lo lots of different investments um, in this space, and they've got lots of different um, green steel projects that are going on. They've got a uh, direct reduction of iron ore um, project and electric arc furnace in Germany. They have uh, already, they have one that's coming out by 2025, which is a DRI EAF plant in Hamburg and something in uh, Eisenhutenstadt. That is the best I can do. I am not sure um, if I could pronounce that better. But um, I think under uh, green steel, they're actually making green steel more possible by investing in the entire ecosystem to create the, the um, green hydrogen they need to make green steel and investing in the green steel as well. So th that happened, I mean, over the last uh, year or two. And, and I think that's super um, inspiring and, and, and definitely going down the right path. So I, I think there's been um, a, a lot of positive uh, movement in, in many sectors, but those, those two in particular, I think, have, have really... Uh, have sort of consolidated and 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 seem that that people are much more comfortable with those pathways. There is a question around why is that the case, Alicia? I mean, you know, it, is this because you know we we've had this debate in various guises during previous um, episodes, and you and me have spoken about this before. Is this a? I'm going to be provocative. Investors being lazy, right? I mean, you know, uh, big ammonia and methanol plants are the sort of things that the market is kind of well set to do you know they're very very large which justifies people spending large amounts of time and capital on them they're a single project with a single set of planning documents for people to get their head around you know it's a well-known process you know making ammonia is a well-known process and it's a highly commoditized proposition you know you're not having to explain necessarily what does this do for one customer or the other you're just trying to demonstrate it's going to be price competitive um, and that there is a market. And of course, in the case of ammonia, there already is a 210 million ton a year market for existing. And then there's all the other commentary that comes out of groups like um, the Mask uh, Global Technology Group and various others saying, we want to buy X million tons of green ammonia for shipping. So is it just that the reason those have taken off is because the investor community is lazy or is, uh, and they're the easier ones to get their handle on? Or is that actually just because businesses like intercontinental energy have just been better, frankly, at articulating how and why those types of projects are essential, as opposed to businesses that have been more on the product end or more focused on the that kind of new energy applications at the smaller scale. Because, and I say that because we haven't seen many project financings in the market for you know any of the small or mid-scale green hydrogen projects. You know. And, I count protein amongst that too. We haven't managed to get to anything to that scale yet either. Um, but you are seeing a lot of projects going to feed and you are seeing a lot of big MOUs getting signed up for these big green ammonia and green methanol plays. So that seems to have been a, a much more apparent distinction in the market this year. And I'm just trying to think what's driving that. I, I wouldn't say it's laziness. I mean, I think this year compared to last year, uh, it really is the demand that's changing the picture. Because, you know, we didn't get into this business to make um, green ammonia for fertilizer. This, 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 we, we, we want to make green ammonia that will have no greenhouse gas releases, right? That will be zero. And uh, unfortunately, green ammonia um, still has issues with agricultural runoff and, uh, you know, pollution in groundwater. 
People still use 10 times the amount of fertilizer they should. Uh, I think we think farming should should eventually uh, become more regenerative. Uh, and a lot of people are moving in that direction, using compost, using manure, and also just the way that you, you plant and the way that you let land lay fallow. I think ammonium nitrate is great, um, but a lot of people are using a lot to increase the yield by 3% in one year, and then five years later, there's no topsoil. And, and I think that that's, this is something that that industry has really got to focus on head on. EU has already, you know, thought quite a lot about this. So this opportunity certainly wasn't um, a drive to create um, a cleaner chemical to use in farming. What we wanted to do is really decarbonize the most difficult to decarbonize sectors, which we really think are things like steel, which, you know, involves a huge amount of dirty energy right now, and, and shipping. Um, so those are the two new markets that have really made people more comfortable with ammonia. And I think just these companies like ArcelorMittal, it's not so much that they're investing in uh, green ammonia production facilities like our projects. They're actually investing in the green steel itself, right? So those those that will eventually uh, acquire, will buy green ammonia. And they're investing in the whole supply chain, like electrolyzers and all sorts of things that will make sure that the green ammonia is available at some point. So it very well could be smaller companies making it that that also get um, can get an offtake, you know, from from green steel. So so I'm not sure that it, it is all just sends everybody towards uh, giant projects. I mean, we obviously think that the larger the project and, you know, the better the resource and all sorts of things can get you a much cheaper product. Um, and so I think that's why our sites are attractive. But I think that the the real um, the, the real agreement around ammonia and green steel is more for what it can do, the, the, the amount of decarbonization that it, that it can produce, and, and the fact that they are actually good um, solutions for, for problems that, you know, create quite a bit of pollution. Um, so, so I actually don't think it's driven by, by investment in a large project. It, it's more driven by the demand. And even though we know that the demand is so much greater than supply, that still, for large projects, we're going to have have to have offtake agreements, and that means that you really do need to identify who is really going to buy this because they're going to sign an offtake agreement. And this has been really helpful to show to have uh, shipping companies say that you know this is what they're interested in: methanol in the short term and ammonia in the long term, and to have green steel companies or regular steel companies saying that they're going to be shifting to green steel. So I think that's the, those are, those huge demand markers are still super important, even though we know that this market is gigantic compared to what we can produce today and in 10, 20 years. And I kind of want to take something from there and maybe flip across to Patrick, which is, you know, if what we're seeing is this massive growth, as Alicia's explained, you know, I thought laid out quite nicely for more green ammonia and more green steel, and those trends have become clearer in the last year and, and the demand story has changed there. The thing that sort of sat in the back of my mind, and we touched on it a little bit in some of the steel episodes earlier this year, is when we first started talking about hydrogen, this was seen as a retrofit play in some ways, right? It, you know, there was this idea that green hydrogen would help you to preserve 
and decarbonize existing um, facilities. But the more we have these conversations, the more it seems to me as though it's not about decarbonizing existing facilities as much as it's closing down facilities that can't be decarbonized and maybe are just very inefficient from a climate perspective where they currently are. And actually it's building brand new sites and brand new uh, supply chains from scratch that are inherently green from the moment they're built. And I I just wonder how you look at that because, you know, you, you do have that sort of slightly broader exposure in, you know, yes, that obviously has significant price competitiveness, but there must be a massive jobs aspect to this, isn't there? Um, yeah, I think I think just to clarify, when we when we talk about green steel manufacturing, it, it has never been a direct retrofit play for the blast furnace, basic oxygen furnace position. You can, to a limited degree, co-fire in existing blast furnaces hydrogen to produce steel with a, a decarbonized footprint, right? Because you're you're shifting some of the uh, you know, uh, the reduction pathway away from using a, a metallurgical or a coking coal feedstock to a, um, to a hydrogen feedstock, right? Um, so it has always been a transformative play, whether at existing sites, and in that sense, retrofitting or retrofitting kind of regional production, um, or moving to greenfield sites. And, and some of the greenfield development is likely to reflect the fact that you're going to move away from being proximate to maybe coal fields and closer to iron ore fields as a, as a kind of design feature, right? So you're, you're moving the bulkiest commodity feedstock, or sorry, you're moving towards the bulkiest commodity feedstock because, excuse me, sorry, that's because um, that'll be iron ore going forward, right? In terms of jobs, uh, I, think the, I think the simple answer is yes, right? Um, these these kind of transformative efforts, whether you talk about a you know large scale Haber Bosch facilities, whether you talk about steel facilities, whether you talk about general chemicals transformations, whether you talk about practically practically anything here, is an opportunity to generate far more jobs related to production of decarbonized products than you know frankly after construction is finished you typically see on a standard renewables uh, resource site right. So this is this is how you make some of these projects tangible, impactful, and beneficial to to communities that have been in many ways left behind. But the other aspect of this, which is a bit more around the kind of the general kind of equity equality piece, is that the benefit of this is that nobody has a monopoly, and as a consequence of that, you're likely to see sites developed in a lot of different places that will be, you know, reasonably competitive, right? There's obviously some regions generally that have an advantage, you know, across the board, but, you know, fundamentally, you're likely to see a, a better global spread on these efforts. And that's why you see a lot of people engaging with, you know, new projects in North Africa, projects generally in, in some emerging, uh, emerging economies, but also you see projects being built in places where you know nobody would have contemplated it previously so to the point some of this is transformative there's no question of it. it's transformative on a on a structural level i should add just on the steel side just seeing as that was your direct question if you have an existing electric arc furnace you're adding a direct reduction facility to that and then leveraging your electric arc furnace to produce steel so you know depending on who you are and where you are and depending on, on how it's set up um, this will require a lot more capital and also create a lot more jobs, or it will, you know, uh, compound the positioning potentially of your electric arc furnace, moving it away from, 
you know, a recycled steel perhaps facility into a more genuine kind of virgin steel production resource. It kind of depends, but fundamentally it is disruptive. It is going to cause change and it is going to create some jobs for sure. No, and, and I think that probably all, all, all is, is about right. I mean, we, we talk a bit about jobs, and I guess that's um, maybe a theme that's been quite interesting this year has been because companies have raised very well in 21 and 20, uh, and a few did raise this year as well, you know, a lot more people are being hired into this space, and certainly Proteum, and I, I know we're not the only ones, are sort of saying, well, actually, there's not that many people now in the market with the skill sets, with the expertise, with the knowledge to to actually do all the things we need to do. And in some senses, one of the constraints we're now seeing actually is that there are not enough skilled people um, in the supply chain and that that is a potential bottleneck. I know it's a big bottleneck for the EPC, certainly. Um, maybe just trying to go at this from two different sides. I mean, Alicia, as you guys have always taken a much longer term view at, at ICE and you know you've spoken before when you were on the show about you know building supply chains with you as you build the projects it'd just be interesting to get your view on how you and others are thinking about that skills side of the supply chain as well as the physical equipment side of the supply chain and then maybe Patrick it'd be interesting just to get your view from the US about how they're dealing with some of these you know, resource-based, human resource-based challenges as they're scaling up, especially given that something like the IRA is going to have such a, oh, IRA, God, we've got to find a better name for this thing, <laughs> but IRA is going to have such an impact on the ecosystem, right? I mean, it's going to catalyze so much funding. Where on earth are the people going to come from? You know, maybe we kind of do the, the longer-term, well-structured thoughts from Alicia and then kind of the more knee-jerk, what are people doing in the interim, if we can split it that way? Well, so you're right. I mean, we, we've always been talking about ecosystems around our projects because they act like magnets for the supply chain. Uh, everybody is happy to build a dedicated facility when they know that order book is full. Um, and and it just makes a lot of sense from an economic perspective to be next door. It, it eventually also creates a circular economy so we can provide hydrogen to steel makers and, and then we can take that steel and we can roll it ourselves and put up our own turbines. I mean, there, there's a lot of savings to be had when you have a large project to work with. But inevitably, these, these companies that we partner with to build out the supply chain and, and to be part of these ecosystems will need to provide um, uh, upskilling at the very least, but you know, skills, skills and, and different types of um, training that, that will be necessary um, for all of our projects. I mean, for, for several, we, there are wonderful uh, engineers. Um, and I think that the oil and gas sector has engineers that, that don't require a huge amount of, of upskilling in order to focus on hydrogen. Whereas when you ask them to become you know, a wind or solar player, which is essentially a utility without a lot of the same engineering skills, it, it really wasn't the best fit ever, even if they had the, you know, the greatest hearts and <laughs> the most wonderful um, you know, intentions in mind, it, it wasn't as easy a fit. Whereas what we see with, for instance, you know, we, we announced this summer that, that BP is, came in as an, an investor and um, will have the operating contract for AREH in Australia, who they have actually 
doesn't take a lot of change um, in order to have them be very productive members of engineering teams and, and, and different uh, positions in a green hydrogen company. So it is a bit easier, I think, than that transition from, from fuels and oil and gas to turbines. Um, I think it's a bit easier. And we now have, I mean, we now have a lot of people who are extremely experienced with that upstream wind and solar that, that we use um, and other renewables. So we're not seeing a huge uh, lack of, uh, we're not having that many problems hiring, to be honest. I think inflation is hitting everybody. Um, so I, I think, you know, people are, are going to be a little bit more expensive. But for us, you know, our employees are all owners of the company. So that's one way to get around it. Um, and, and, and that's, that's one way to, uh, you know, to make people happier with, um, without, uh, without as much competition, because not every company is willing to, uh, provide stock to every single person in the, in their company. But, you know, we have, we have, uh, the ability to do that because we're smaller. I mean, I, I do think, yes, certain profiles are difficult to find, but I think people are much more willing to move anywhere in the world now. Um, I think COVID sort of changed the, the equation dramatically. Most people now are pretty open to just move anywhere. Um, and, and that's sort of interesting. Um, this is definitely, I mean, I, I absolutely think this came from COVID, but this, we never had this type of, of flexibility uh, beforehand. Um, so that, I guess, one good thing from COVID, too. We've, we're getting um, the tiniest silver linings from terrible things to happen. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and to follow on on the, the second question, Chris, I think the answer is basically the same right? It's the same skill sets moving from, you know, I, I know of many people who have uh, very recently moved from the conventional or traditional ONG sector into the into this space. Um, I expect that trend continues, right? So like, I think I think what we're talking about really is, is not a structural shortage, it's an allocation shortage, right? It's that conventionally people lived in one place, worked in one place doing one thing, and now they have options. And what we're seeing is a gradual shift from uh, from one effort or one ser series of setup of operation to another. Um, I, th I think the other side of this is, and I think it's a probably probably a good thing, is that you know people can attract higher wages, and we should be pretty pleased that we're working in a sector that can now afford to pay people properly for doing good work that will be beneficial in general to kind of <laughs> the global state of uh, of and condition, right? And um, that's part of the pain point, sure, when you're setting up and getting operating. But if you're running good projects and doing good business, this is this is the price of doing that business, and it's perfectly worth paying. So, um, yeah, I don't think the answer is any different from what Alicia just said. Yeah, and I, and I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it's a great day when we're paying people more and, and <laughs> from what they're worth. And I, I don't know about other countries, but the U.S. You know, uh, wages were stagnant for over forty years, so. This is, um, I think this is really is the Green New Deal, even though it has a, a completely uh, uh, confusing name of the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> I think we, we really got a lot of what we uh, wanted, at least for the U.S. And then many other countries are following suit. Um, I think a lot of different countries 
are thinking of this as a just transition. I mean, it's not just about the environment. It's also about pulling up people who, you know, have not had opportunities before or who have suffered from um, the by living next to these refineries or or basically suffered by by not having choice in in uh, where they can live and and the air that they breathe and a number of different factors. So it, it kind of gives us a fresh start, um, which I think we all find really exciting. I mean, it, it's I think it's a great thing when, when people are being paid well. I mean, we can't can't really argue with that <laughs> point, can I? I mean, <laughs> I think I think we're all aligned there. Um, I mean, I, I'm conscious of time because I think with all of us, it's uh, it's dangerous. We we kind of keep going on for a little while. I, I think a theme though that was starting to come out at the end, and we've been flirting through this discussion has been, you know, the, the discussions of um, is the technology ready? Those are gone. The discussions of, you know, how do we get sort of early stage seed funding into these businesses and what does the regulation need to look like? I think that's gone. Um, and, you know, we're now into the nuts and the bolts of how do you scale up these businesses uh, and how do you get these projects that are going through feed and some of them going through those offtake negotiations, you know, which ones are going to come over the line and what are going to be the first issues? That seems to me to be where we are as a market. And that's a very fundamentally different market than where we were even 18 months ago, let alone you know, 36 or 48 months ago. Um, and I just thought that was an interesting theme, maybe as a final one to sort of finish and reflect on, which is the pace of the energy transition is so dramatic that it requires us to iterate at a level and intensity that has not been seen in the energy transition since arguably the industrial revolution and potentially even at a faster rate than what we saw at that time um and to give an example someone was you know saying you know and just to give an example of the mentality impact of that there was a nice comment at a, a panel i was at recently where someone said if you were working in the British power sector between 1945 and effectively 1970, all you saw was growth. You know, UK power demand doubled and all you saw was growth. But if you joined the UK power market in the 1970s till today, you'd seen stagflation and decline. And so what made me reflect on that is, you know, we're in a hydrogen ecosystem that's scaling very rapidly and it's being scaled predominantly by people, uh, by companies in Western nations. But ironically, Western nations are the ones where that skill set of how do you rapidly scale energy systems has mostly faded. And most people in Western countries have been dealing with declining or flat energy systems. Um, and so the, the, the thought that was playing around my mind is, people talk about how do you bring it as a global solution? Well, the only part of the world that really has experience of scaling up energy infrastructure at pace and has experience of scaling up clean infrastructure at pace is not the global north, it's the global south. And so, you know, how do we get more of those lessons and how do we get more of those experiences from countries like India, like China, like Vietnam, you know, like Kenya and others that have, you know, profoundly changed and, and actually to be fair, the Middle East as well that have experience in consistently deploying and growing their power sector. How do we take that knowledge and, and learn from that um, to incorporate new technologies in, in the Northern Hemisphere, while also trying to embed some of the practices around ESG um, that we've seen in the Northern Hemisphere and some of the safety and regulatory 
measures as well. That to me seems to be the big next challenge for the market. A lot to unpack in that statement, but just sort of reflecting on that, Lissa, you've spoken about you know these different yeah. markets. Do you feel that we maybe don't spend enough time thinking about how we can share lessons learned from different parts of the world? And, and Patrick, I'd put the same question to you. Well, I think if you really look at it, you look at these projects that have been done all over the world, a lot of the domain expertise is still coming from Western or Northern companies. Um, so, you know, a lot of the EPC, a lot of, you know, think about all the different companies that are working all over um, Latin America and uh, Middle East and in Asia. It's, you know, it's Worley's and Technip and it's Petrofac and it's 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 Atkins. It's it's a lot of the same companies, um, and they've been working in these different jurisdictions. But they've still been um, and they they've, they've still been very much up to date. Even if they never have a project in Germany, um, they are out in the rest of the world working on different projects. And and I, I don't think. Um, I don't think they're behind um, on this. And, and I think that um, there will actually be quite a few. It'll actually, the real difference will be there'll, there'll be some really innovative things coming back to Europe. Um, it could still involve the same people, but they just don't have to travel to other parts of the world. <laughs> you know, when you have ThyssenKrupp um, has the, I think, youngest and largest uh, steel facility in, in uh, Europe. And they want to switch that entirely over to green hydrogen. Um, that's that's going to be a really big uh, project requiring quite a lot of hydrogen and, and energy and, and also people. So um, I think you're going to see a lot of the same people uh, coming back from other parts of the world to sort of upskill their their fellow um, employees. But but they are still going to be Westerners. And that I think that's kind of interesting. But I also think, you know, we always have a lot to learn from different countries. Um, a lot of countries have creativity in different ways. You know, the, the sort of um, Indian method of uh, uh, jugger or jugad. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. It, it basically is kind of to jerry-rig or to, to use very limited resources in order to solve a problem, a creative way to solve a problem. This has now become an actual, uh, this is a term that's used in uh, management theory around the world, um, is to basically try to find ways to be as frugal as possible and, and, use, um, and use what resources are available in your area to, to uh, to address your problems or to create your solutions. Uh, instead of just out of the box, everybody in the world is going to use the same thing. It's, it's really taking a look at what you have and what you can do with it. Uh, I think we have a lot to learn from that. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of that because people are realizing that every part of the world is very different in terms of the resources that they have, the quality of those resources, the needs that they have, etc. Um, that, you know, all the solutions are, are going to have to be quite tailored and we can't afford to be wasting in any way. Uh, so I think we're going to be seeing a little bit more creative thinking. And, and I think it's obviously good for uh, 
decarbonization for the world? Um, there, there's a whole heap of opportunity. And that opportunity, I think, you know, historically, a lot of those sort of engagements that are, that are kind of being described have been extractive in nature and have not provided a, a structural investment or a con, an ongoing con, uh, kind of investment and therefore have been, you know, always kind of, con, you know, whether formally or informally considered sort of a temporary kind of positioning in, in a lot of kind of emerging markets. And that has led to, you know, some pretty bad kind of long-term consequences. You know, the, the, the legacy of mining sector, in, in, for example, something that I've worked on is, is pretty not great. And I think, you know, it will be a mistake for this industry and sector not to learn those lessons well and to understand that this is not a, you know, parasitic kind of effort so much as this is a genuine opportunity to create regional markets that are self-sustaining uh, to uh, facilitate and support development in a whole heap of regions that have been neglected and exploited for an extended period of time. Uh, that's the opportunity that we kind of have sitting in front of us. Uh, it's not easy. It's not simple. Um, but that is the opportunity. So yeah, I think I think that's that's kind of where I come to it on these things. Is that if we engage it in the right way, this has a long term beneficial um, outcome across the board, and it's 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 an opportunity that by virtue of the natural kind of energy endowments of a geography being more equally spread rather than there's a pot of, you know, gas or oil sitting under your surfaces and that only exists in a few spots in the world, you know, or X, Y, or Z commodity, because we have a better spread of it, um, I would hope and expect that we have a greater opportunity to see that more kind of dispersed development, which is good pretty much for everybody. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my general overarching take on it is a simple one, but, uh, I suppose sometimes the simple lessons are the valuable ones to hold in your head, right? Definitely. Simple, but um, not not necessarily easy to execute. Um, I, I, and I think maybe that was the the point I was kind of going to finish on a little bit here too, which is, you know, we're at the end of seemingly an era of cheap money, um, or at the very least, money is getting pickier. We're in a market where. Uh, there's more awareness of hydrogen and therefore the sort of level of sophistication from both buyers but also investors is is, is increasing. We're in a market where there is a, a level of global competition for talent, for resources and, and an increasing global need to see action across these areas. And so it does feel like to me this is also the sort of moment where which businesses and which you know individuals have got the right strategies in place and have got the right teams to execute this is the, we're in that phase of the market now where that's that will be the defining i think feature of this next phase of the market i don't think we're in a i think there was a phase in the market where you just needed to have hydrogen in your name and have some ip and you could probably get reasonably far i think that phase is gone and now it's it's sort of a we accept the thesis, we accept that there's a value in the technology, prove that you're the ones that are going to make it work. And we've seen quite a few changes of the guard from a number of big companies in the last few months. I suspect they won't be the last, there'll be others. Um, and many simply just going on to new opportunities in the space, you know, but also just new people coming in with, with a different way of how to scale and move these businesses on from that startup, you know, 
period into you know fully fledged commercial operations. So I feel like uh, if I was uh, trying to give my thought on how to wrap up 2022, it's uh, Patrick's expression: the rubbers hit the road. So you know who now is actually the best rally car drivers there. All the cars are equal. Everyone knows the track. Um, who's going to pull ahead? That that to me seems to be the the question left unanswered um, as we as we near the end of this year. But look, um, really great to have both of you guys on the show today. And uh, obviously missing our friend Andrew, but we'll uh, we'll see if we can get him in for some comments uh, fairly soon. You'll have noticed, our dear listeners, that um, we've been a little bit slower of late in uh, in getting some of these episodes out. I am delighted to say, however, that help is on the way. And uh, you may have noticed from Alicia being uh, kindly with us here today that uh, and, and featuring slightly more regularly in the last few months that we have uh, now another co-host with us. And from the start of season four, I'm delighted to say that Alicia Eastman will be joining the Everything About Hygiene gang and uh, helping to bring not only her fantastic perspectives and insights to the show, but also her time, uh, her extremely valuable time for which we as the co-host are extremely generous and grateful great well, sorry, we're extremely grateful for her generous offer of that time and also her guests so hopefully you'll start to see some exciting new guests on the show too maybe slightly different profile to the ones we've had before um and alicia do you want to la- leave uh, our listeners with any uh, sort of i don't know sneak preview thoughts or comments before we wrap this up well, I'm just uh, super excited to be joining this team. You know, I was a uh, fangirl for uh, hydrogen, <laughs> everything about hydrogen when it was quite young. Um, and I, I know that a lot of people in the industry uh, really enjoy it because it is uh, it's, it's very honest perspectives and opinions from people who are working in the industry across different, really different sectors or, or different parts of the, of the supply chain. And uh, we're adding a lot of diversity because unlike the three of you guys who went to SICE, um, I went to Fletcher. So, you know, we've got four um, diplomats in training <laughs> doing a hydrogen show. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> a little diversity is good. But I, I do think well, we have some great ideas and we've already that lined up for the next season. And so I think it's going to be an even better one and really looking forward to it and engaging more with uh, this audience. Um, So please uh, let us know who you want to hear from and and we'll try to get them on. And that does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Alicia Eastman, president and co-founder of Intercontinental Energy and the newest member of the EAH team. We are absolutely ecstatic to have Alicia on board here and cannot wait to start recording the season four episodes with her soon. Thank you as always to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you will come back to join us again in December for the start of Season 4 of Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.